Hi, and welcome to The Pondering Episodes. Have you got thoughts and questions about faith, the Bible, church, and life in general? Well, so do we. In these episodes, we aim to have conversations where we wrestle and embrace all that this journey of faith brings. Do we have all the answers? No. But we are willing to ponder the big and the small things and have honest chats that may bring about new ways of thinking. Over the next two episodes, Mike and Hannah will muse on some of the questions that they wrestled with during the shaping of the Minor Prophets series, such as the nature of God's judgment and how do we actually apply these texts to our own lives. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hi, Mike Hardy. Hey, Hannah. Bartle. We're going to do that thing where you're going to introduce yourself. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um... I'm a dad. I'm married to Teresa. I've got two kids, 13-year-old and a now 8-year-old. Uh, and I am the lead pastor at Good Life. And it's an incredible privilege and I've been doing it the last year and a half. And, um, doing a great yeah. job. Thank you. Awesome. And I'm Hannah Bartle and I too am married to Amos and have two kids and have been in this position of... I guess what creative director and doing some teaching for eight months in August now. Yeah, but being part of the church for a much. But being time. part of the church for about fifteen years. Teacher background. Teacher background. Currently studying on my way to doing a master's in divinity. Yeah. So I'm excited to have some cool conversations. Mm. I'm excited you're doing it so that. You can tell me stuff. You can teach me things. <laughs> One of us is legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, okay. So, Mike, what, I guess as a recap of where we have been the last few weeks for church in our series, do you want to give a recap of what we've been looking at as a preface? Yeah. So, well, I mean, a bit of backstory. We decided to do the Minor Prophets uh, a few months back and uh, or a whole bunch of months ago. And I probably was heading towards the series with a little bit of fear and trepidation because the Minor Prophets aren't books that are normally spoken about a whole lot by preachers and teachers in churches. There are some who will tackle it, but a lot of people will steer clear of it because they're complex and they're tricky and what does it mean for today and for our lives and all of that. But we decided, you know what, we've got to look at the whole counsel of God and understand why are they here, what do they have to teach us, what can we learn from it. So we jumped in. Uh, we've done four of the Minor Prophets out of the Twelve, um, commonly referred to as the Book of the Twelve. And uh, we started off with the first one that you did, which was on... Amos. Book of Amos, yes. which we had lots of uh, laughs over because your husband is called Amos. Correct. So now yes. I think of him as Amos the Prophet. <laughs> the Prophet. He likes to call himself that now. <laughs> goes I'm sure he does. Amos the Prophet. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's got lots Electrician of Electrician and Prophet. Just... <laughs> Whatever you need, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we went to the book of Jonah mm-hmm. and kind of unpacked that. And that's a fascinating story that kind of sits as a really interesting uh, story amongst the rest of these prophets. Um, and then we went to the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, which we joked about how you say the name. And then uh, finished up this series uh, with the book of Joel. And um, yeah, for the most part, it's been really encouraging hearing people's feedback and them saying, oh, I haven't spent a lot of time because I don't really know how to read them mm. and make sense of mm. them. So, yeah. yeah. Um, from I would say from a personal viewpoint, echoing that little bit of trepidation in approaching the Minor Prophets 
myself, particularly when I had to kick off the series. I think I spent two weeks walking around the offices and people asking, how's, how's it going preparing that? And me just shaking my head and going, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't even know. There's a lot of doom and gloom and I just, I can't do it. Um, and then... But actually, yeah, the more that we have dug into it, it has been hard work. And even if you just read them, and I think I said um, to the congregation when I introed it, if you sat and you read the book of the 12 from, you know, the beginning to end, it's super challenging and confronting. And we're left with more questions than probably answers. Um because of its content but that's a really good thing and I think that's what we're trying to do in this little series is ask some of those big questions not expecting that we have all of the answers but we might offer some insights into how we have wrestled with them um, and that maybe it might illuminate something for someone that um, we see things in a different way because it's really good to see things in new ways or to hear different perspectives so that's kind of our approach to this so I guess in light of that um, were there any things that for you when you have been preparing this series any questions or feeling that tension or struggle there's probably a few and we might go over them um, in time but some things that have stood out for you that you have wrestled with yeah well 100 yes i think it's impossible to read the book of the 12 or the minor prophets as we commonly call them without feeling or at least asking yourself the question do these kind of judgments still happen today mm. Mm -hmm. And how do I make sense of how the prophets seem to speak about God and the harshness of these judgments and what it means for the land and the people and the children and, you know, and entire nations? And then how do we wrestle with that, with Jesus teaching around love of enemy and, you know, God's commitment that we see coming through, I would argue, the whole of Scripture, but increasingly through Jesus' teaching of God's grace and mercy and justice. Um, and so how do we make sense of all of that? Um, and then I think the obvious thing is you, you read so much about what these judgments are going to be and how bad these people are. It just feels very heavy. It's mm -hmm. kind of like, I don't know what that's got to do with how I'm living my life as a mm -hmm. dad and a husband mm -hmm. and how I'm going to work today and <laughs> what, what yeah. I'm going to do. So it's like... Uh, it's not like an uplifting motivational verse to kind of kickstart my day. It's yeah. If you started off the day reading the Minor Prophets, you're like, oh, gosh, that's a bit heavy. <laughs> totally, totally. You walk yeah. away a little bit depressed yeah. rather than... But they're there. So yeah. what are they there yeah. for? Why do the people that can, you know, compiled the, these books together as what we call the Bible in this library, why do they think it's important for us to have them? Mm. So why do you think that why? yourself? <laughs> what do I think? <laughs> Well, I think um, when we look at, and we've talked about this before, but you, the Old Testament is this insight into a nation's journey with God and how God has revealed himself um, throughout their history. And their history is not recorded or recounted like we as modern 
modern audiences think about history we're very fact driven we're very we want to know the exact timeline of things and dates and we want all of this evidence but the ancients didn't record history that way that's not how they saw their own history in lots of nations it's not how they responded to history it was the narrative and the story and dates and those types of things didn't matter which is challenging for us in the first place because we as modern readers want to be like well shouldn't this all be historically accurate well no because that's not what the point was so when we look at the minor prophets these were all we have the namesake prophets that are based in their time so for example amos um he's an eighth century prophet based in that time but then his um his prophetic word or his um, call to the nations and and his revelation of what was going to happen to them has been taken and interpreted and reinterpreted for over 300 years to post-exile by a community that are looking back at their history and trying to figure out what God was saying and doing in that. Mm. And so the reason these books exist is because it's part of the nation's history but also their interpretation of events and trying to wrestle and figure out where was God in it what was he doing and what is their purpose now and where is he now and so that's one of the reasons why they're there and it's I always view it as or I have come to view them as this as brutal as some of the context is and the things that happen is if you think about the fact that the people who are writing these down post-exile, they are, it's almost a repentance of their nation, of these were the atrocious things we did and God judged us for it, so let us not now make the same mistakes. It's a call to their to the faithful to go, this was what God has, you know, he saw in, in the evil things we did and we're now living in the hope and restoration here. God has remained faithful to us. Mm. So what are we going to do now that he has remained faithful still to us even after we've done everything? That's the long-winded way of, I think, trying to understand why they exist and why they're there. So, Yeah. And so I suppose the challenge is how do we as people living in 2023 in you know, a post-COVID um, world, and then in our context in the West, make sense of these particular books and what was happening when there was, this was the era of, you know, literal empires and countries taking over countries, which clearly we see mm. evidence of that in different ways still today. Um, but it's still a different dynamic. And then the way that they even had prophets in their time, there are people who say we have prophets still today, but yeah. it's not as obvious. Yeah. And so, how do we how do we make sense of that for our time? What do you what have been some of the standout messages for you when you look back here that you say, okay, here's how they operated then. Here's what seemed to be happening. Mm. But how is this relevant for us today? Mm. I think one of the big things is like Israel and Judah. So at this point when the prophets um are like their origins israel and judah are two separate nations now it's a split kingdom but they're both still god's people right their history is that they're god's chosen people 
and and we'll probably get to it later about uh, the confronting nature of um, the judgment and violence that we read in the prophets. But you see that God is so distraught over his people having neglected their responsibility to be about what he's about, which is justice and um, taking care of those who are oppressed, those who are the outcast, all of all of these things that were, you know, God, who God is and what his nature is and his people have rejected that and are now oppressing their own people selling their people into slavery the poor are not taken care of and they have totally just rejected everything that god is about whilst still claiming that they are god's chosen people and i think for us now we live and we i i think a great approach is to always obviously we look at all of these things through the lens of jesus and you know jesus has come and he's the fulfillment um and he's the living word and we now live in that freedom that christ has brought us but we still if we are going to say we are the people of god there's still this call to responsibility that we are going to be about the things that god is about that our heart will break for the things that break god's heart for oppression for poverty for slavery for all these things that still exist the call is still the same and i think that's the thing that has resonated a lot for me is that there's a lot of hyperbole and by that i mean a lot of exaggerated language in the prophets um particularly in regards to violence because what they're trying to hammer home is how far israel and judah have strayed from doing what they should have been doing your um, comment a moment ago about um, the people of Israel and Judah understanding themselves as God's chosen people is a phrase that you know raises all kinds of questions for people. Especially, I think we can um, just make assumptions if we've grown up in church about what that means and how mm. we understand that. But for someone outside of, say, faith who hears the phrase chosen people, it it always sounds like oh chosen and then the unchosen mm. um mm-hmm. you know the the ones who are in and yep. they get to be with god forever and the ones who tough luck you're not chosen yep <laughs> um i think reflecting on that chosen dynamic is really important in understanding what were they cho- who were they chosen by what were they chosen for is really important because i think my simple sunday school upbringing was they were chosen as god's special people and then they got to go to heaven one day and mm. everyone else misses out mm. as opposed to chosen with a very specific purpose to reflect um, God's purposes through the nations, mm. through the earth um, to actually embody um, the spirit of God in the way mm. that they govern themselves mm. as a nation, mm. originally an oppressed nation now liberated, now given a new way to live under God's law. Um, but then that call of Abraham uh, right back in Genesis to where God says, I'm going to bless you and through you all the nations are going to be blessed, which is, that's not a kind of a chosenness that is like selfish. This is a chosenness. This is about others. Yeah. 
And so when you understand that background and then you realize these chosen people have rejected their calling and their mm. identity, it starts to make a lot of sense around, okay, this is not just about chosen for some ethereal after you die calling. This is chosen with a unique, um, what's the word, um, vocation or mandate to bless the world. And now they're being challenged by the prophets that they've forgotten who they are. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that jumps out at me is like, you guys don't know who you are. Yeah. You've become like the other nations. You've become like empire. Yeah. Um, you've become like, you got liberated from Egypt under Pharaoh and now you're becoming, you're doing those things. Yeah. Yes, and it's like how you were saying the in Joel, the lo- the plague of the locusts and that type of thing. There's yeah. all these echoes back to their history. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can follow that trail back to um, when we look at the story of Adam and Eve. It's it's a another story, an analogy of Israel's history yeah. of that same thing, that right. they were chosen to be set apart to reflect God's image. Yeah. And then they didn't (laughs) and so then there were consequences again and it's just israel's history over and over again yeah Mm. so consequences you just Mm. said um consequences are hard for us to get our head around because we all reap consequences for our actions you know you sow um something negatively you can probably expect to receive something back negatively Although the world's weird because, you know, sometimes you reap what you sow and sometimes you don't. Sometimes someone Mm. else reaps what you sowed and sometimes you reap what someone else sowed. Mm. So there's a bit of complexity in it all. Mm. How do we make sense of these judgments on these nations? And what's the purpose of judgment, I suppose? Here we go. Now we're getting it. (laughs) Just answer my question and make it (laughs) right for me. Oh, (laughs) gosh. Yeah, these are the ones when we said we're going to tackle some big questions. These are ones we still don't really have totally clear answers on. But yeah, they're, they're not simple. No, these so these are what we've been talking about judgments. Well, I feel like you you've probably got a good answer. I think when we're talking about the purpose of judgment, I think the starting point is a lot of people think of judgment as as final. Mm. They think this is it. It's done. You're you're destroyed. But when we understand the nature of judgment in scripture, it's more in the category of discipline. It's more in the category of, um, I'm trying to shake you into waking up to the horror mm-hmm. of how far you've abandoned your calling mm-hmm. and your, your purpose and how this is impacting not only people and the, the people that you're meant to love as your neighbor, but literally it's, it's an ecological impact here. The land is damaged. The, you know, things are not flourishing. And this is a result of how you guys have been living. And so this judgment's meant to wake them up. But it always has this intention of restoration and healing and coming back to. Like we were saying on Sunday around, um, you know, the Hebrew word for repentance literally means to return. Uh, mm. The Greek word mm. we often associate with repentance means to change your mind. It's the same ultimate intention, but that is to go back to your origin or your core calling or yeah. who God is and how you relate to God. Um, so I think understanding the nature of judgment in those terms is helpful, but I think where we have tension, and this is where the wrestling comes, 
is that even the prophets themselves are wrestling with how they understand judgment because they feel like it's too harsh. They feel like it's too intense. They're like going, surely God, you know. Yeah, they say, God, Amos says, please don't. And God goes, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I won't. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of conflict in that. And it feels the same. I think when we read it, we're like, ooh, that's that's pretty heavy. Mm. Um, is And is this is the, the nature of this judgment or as we understand God's wrath, is this God just getting super angry and go, that's it, I've had enough and, you know, like rolling out fire yeah. and brimstone over yeah. everyone because yeah. he's just super ticked off? Yes. Or is this, what is this? How do we even understand yeah. God's wrath, I suppose, is a question. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, if we look at judgment and if we go, because um, it's always, we should always be considering when we look at these passages, particularly these ones, because they're just so intense and it just looks like God is this angry, wanting to punish type God that particularly when we, um, those of us who follow Jesus, when we read these, we go, oh my goodness, how do we, how do we um, hold these two together? But I think it's always important to go back to the context of which these these texts have been written and like a flat reading is that we just take everything quite literally and we just assume that what what is written there word for word is exactly what must have happened but and through and this is from doing lots of research um the even the language that is used in these books so again if we take Amos for example um there are there's all of these judgments and woes um but the language that is used is um very similar to and this is again I think something that we have to get our minds around maybe because we've not really heard this before but a lot of the language that's used and even the structure of a lot of our books is very similar to other ancient Near Eastern texts that are not biblical texts. So the biblical writers, much how if we were to write something, if I was going to write a novel or a poem or something, I would use metaphors and similes and imagery that means something to us. You know, we think of like the color blue for us, it signifies maybe calm or sadness or whatever it is we want to do. The same way these writers were using language and metaphor and hyperbole, meaning exaggerations, that were already found and very stereotypical to ancient Near Eastern writings. So this was not uncommon. This type of literature wasn't uncommon, not even just in um, Jewish history, but in ancient Near History in general. And the purpose of these types of texts in the ancient Near East were always because um, they were trying to prove the sovereignty and power of their God. Yeah. So um, in the neighboring nations, they all had stories of their gods exacting judgment on the people they are sovereign over yeah. because they haven't followed what their gods have said for them to do. Therefore, there's going to be all of these types of judgments and a lot of the judgments that we find in the prophets are the same as what are found in these other texts. And so for some people that might be like, wait, what? What do you mean this is like, 
there could be other texts for me. I'm like, well, of course, because these are people writing what they know and understand, but they're taking that and saying those texts, those things, those ways you talk about your gods who we believe are not the sovereign, we're going to take that language and use it to show the sovereignty and power of Yahweh, who is the sovereign and powerful one. And for them, it was trying to show his power and his might and that he is the sovereign one. So when we read the, the language, it's very similar and stereotypical to other ancient Near Eastern texts, but it, they're doing it because they're trying to show amongst all the other gods that Yahweh is the sovereign, mm. powerful God. And so I think that besides, and then we wrestle with the violence and the nature of it, but even coming and understanding, oh, okay, like we are, we are reading, we are witnesses and reading a text that is ancient and we're looking at how these ancient peoples are trying to reconcile God. Yeah. And there's tension in it. But that's the, the nature of the text. And it also helps us to remember that we can't apply our 21st century mindset yeah. <laughs> onto a text that is ancient. Yeah. And so as a side note, if someone's listening to this and they are like, oh, what, what hang on, how do you know about these <laughs> other ancient texts? Yes. Where would someone go to find out what are these other ancient Near East writings that you're talking about? Mm. Well, I don't know if you're going to find them easily unless you are subscribed to an online library or that kind of thing. Yeah, so any credible biblical scholar, um, if you read their work, you'll be able to, they will always reference and they have done the research. And what's amazing is, and for a lot of people, they might be saying, how come we've never been told these things yeah, before, that's right? right. The reason is because in the last 50 years or so, even even later, let's say the last 30 years, there's been incredible archaeological findings. And so biblical scholars, there's just been such a, a headway made in biblical scholarship. That's why we can know these things now and that's why there are so many different views now. And that's a really good thing. It's good that we get to uh, have deeper understandings because even 50 to 100 years ago, this type of information wasn't necessarily known. Um, and so the beauty is, is that we get to um, get a deeper and a wider view of what's going on. Um, and yep, there's going to be more questions, but that's okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Without questions, we wouldn't have any scholarship or any theology <laughs> because yeah. if no one asked the questions, there would be no information. So Absolutely. And... I think uh, one of the things that we were talking about in one, on one of the weeks was this idea of him, what literally the prophet Habakkuk is doing is he's wrestling with God, his questions around, mm. does this have to be God? And he's also then embracing um, God's message and response back to him. Um, but this is a permission for us to also do the same thing. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in the books of Lamentations and these books where there's this genuine cry of question and doubt and wrestle and how does this work? And I think it's we've got to let people know it's okay and it's under it's fine to read these books in your Bible and have questions and doubts and to say, gosh, is this really how God is? And 
because that's what the prophets themselves were even doing. Um, and Habakkuk is a great example of that. And then you've got like other uh, fascinating stories like the book of Jonah, who's then on the other end. So why you've got one prophet wrestling with God's, the nature of how he understands God's judgment. And you then have Jonah who's wrestling with the fact that he thinks God's too merciful. Mm. Uh, yeah. He's just like, no, my understanding of judgment <laughs> is that you should like wipe out these people from Nineveh. But you're telling me to go to them and warn them because your heart is that they'll turn and actually good things will happen. He's like, well, no, I don't like that idea because they've done bad stuff and I think they should suffer. Yeah. And the book just ends with this like dilemma of, well, how does this work? Which is an invitation for us to wrestle with that and yes. say, oh, yeah, how do I understand judgment and how do I understand God's mercy and is how I understand judgment and mercy the same as that that we might say through the lens of jesus Mm. or have i just made up what makes sense for me yes and so yeah that's not just a quick q a no here's the question here's the answer that's a like it's a deep it's a journey that you go on it's a really deep journey and um even in the process of even coming to this conversation that we're having like i have read so much in trying to look at particularly the violence that we see in the prophets and there's so much and there's so many differing views Mm. on on that on judgment you've got people like walter brueggemann who's um a very well-known um old testament scholar and so if you ever want to go and read his stuff he's awesome he um and and his stuff is easily available too but He talks about, um, and I've got like some of it here, that the judgment texts um, are part of Israel's counter-testimony to their core testimony. So he almost sees it as these two tracks that run. And there's the core testimony, which is the um, the gracious God who is in a covenantal relationship with his people. But then we have the... And they're not to be held one up above the other, but then we have the other tract, which is the counter testimony, where you have ambiguity and you have disturbing acts that occur um, and portrayals of God that almost are juxtaposed, but they're kind of working together to illuminate the people trying to figure out who God is. And so there really are these two and they, they wrestle with. We see the writers and yeah. we see the the people who cut the post exilic communities wrestling with who is Yahweh. Yeah. Who is he in light of our history now and what we see? Um, and then there are other scholars who will say that um, because of God's uh, pathos, and by that they mean his emotions Mm -hmm. his that in that sense because of who he is in that sense um he is totally relational um and because of that when he sees the injustice and the destruction of course he has to intervene but it's distressing to him in amos he god himself laments over what is going to happen because he's so distressed that this is going to happen but also because he is just because he's relational, 
this also has to happen. And so then there are scholars who view it, you've got to view it in that way. Mm. And then there are others um, who will say that it's um, really an indication of God's grace because he'll say, um, you know, for three times but not for four. So he's allowed the people continuously to keep going and has tried to warn them but doesn't. And so it's not just a – it's purely God is judgmental and angry and – and everyone's going to suffer. Mm. It's so much broader and deeper and people have so many different views and that there is real sorrow in it and, and because he cares about injustice that he does this. It's not because he's just an angry God that's swirling in the clouds wanting to chuck lightning bolts. Like we, I think sometimes people imagine him like Zeus mm. or something that's yeah. like this big powerful God who's just like, yeah. you know, actually he's just so moved. So... Yeah. I think there's those all of all of those facets. That's it's right. just that makes it up, which is why it's so hard to read them because nothing is black and white in that, I think. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that it maybe sparked your interest or raised some questions for you. Stay tuned for the next episode where Mike and Hannah will continue our conversation and chat about how the average person can read and apply the message of the minor prophets. The tension between the prophets' messages themselves and how would you even go about talking about all this with your kids? This podcast is made possible by an excellent team of human beings. So a big thanks to Josiah Niven, Cherie Allen, Greg Forrest, Mike and Teresa Hardy, Amos and Hannah Bartle, Emma Bell, and the countless other encouragers, friends, and colleagues who continue to support the Good Life mission of building community, fostering health, and offering hope to all people. Make sure you follow our socials, like and leave a five-star review, and listen to our sermon series, also available on our podcast every week. Peace.